For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. Who is interested in natural dyes? I want to say hands up. I can't see you. (laughs) It's not going to work. But I feel like lots of our dear listeners are interested in this and learning about textile traditions and hands-on techniques. So this episode, if you're into that, is a delight. It's also a good one if you're into ideas around seasonality and connection to nature. Aren't we all? We're still in the Pacific. And actually, if you've yet to listen to last episode with Ellen Whippy-Knight from Fiji Fashion Week, do check that one out. These stories are also from Fiji, but a long way from its capital, Suva. After talking to Ellen, I got to attend Fiji Fashion Week and as part of that, I held a sustainability workshop there. And there were some fantastic women in our group, including my two guests today. First, we're going to meet Latila Mitchell, a renowned artist, designer and performer from Rotuma, which, while officially part of Fiji, is very much its own nation, its own place with its own culture. It's 460 k's north of the main island of Fiji. Latila is the artistic director of the Reiko Pacifica Dance Company. She's also a former producer of First Nations programming at Sydney Opera House. And she's a fashion designer, so her work in the fashion space grew out of costume. And she's developed it into a practice that's all about revitalising traditional retomb and textile making, including natural dyes and the old ways of weaving. And she talks about cultural activism and refinding knowledge. It's beautiful. My second guest is Nolene Billings, who works with women's groups around Savu Savu on Fiji's northern island of Vanua Levu. This chat with Nolene is is also about Indigenous wisdom, but this one's focused on reading nature's signals. So listen out for what she says about seasonality and going with the flow of nature. It's beautiful. And it makes so much sense. I think there are universal lessons in here, as well as some thought-provoking questions. For example, what is wisdom? What does it mean to be wise? Why are we so obsessed with schooled knowledge, so all that stuff in books? And why do we have to be so rigid about it? There are obviously other kinds of knowledge that are shared and passed down in different ways that are just as important. And I love this quote from Nolene. She says, First Nations people are the real engineers and scientists, long observing the laws and patterns of nature and working with them. So there's so much to enjoy in this one. Okay, first, let's sit down with Latila Mitchell. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Latila Mitchell. Where are we? Let's describe how we came to meet. Well, currently we're in Suva, Fiji, which is the land that we are speaking from. Uh, We're at the Grand Pacific Hotel, which is a very, very fancy, very old hotel. um, And at Fiji Fashion Week talks. Now... You have a very well-respected, in fact, you're a bit of a rock star fashion label based in and made from Fiji. And actually just in the audience, when we were at someone else's talk just now, I saw this woman and she clocked you and she went, oh, is that her? And she was really excited. So you've created this highly respected label that people look up to and think is wonderful. It's not new. Tell us a little bit about the background to your brand. 
Yeah, well, I started as a dancer. I mean, well, I'm still a dancer, mostly teaching now. So my my design practice comes from costume. Well, costume in the creative industry sense, but for our culture and our practice, it's adornment. So we adorn ourselves with our fibers, with our colors. And so what inspired me sort of trying out the world of fashion was that when we danced with a lot of our prints and our weavings and and the things that we wore as dancers, there was always a lot of interest from the audience and asking, oh, where could we buy that? Do you sell those skirts? Do you sell that fabric? Do you sell the adornment pieces? And so, yeah, so in 2015, Ellen um, was doing Fiji Fashion Week and said, listen, why don't you just give it a go? So we gave it a go. (laughs) And so that's when the fashion label began. And because we have, our practice is hand making, you know, we hand dyed all of our costumes, we wove, we printed we sewed it was quite easy to translate that then into to fabric I was really keen to make sure that the translation was authentic in that we were still using natural fibers so the translation from traditional uh, sort of fibers like our woven pandanus or our tapa cloth translated then into linen and into cottons and into you know other natural fibers that could translate across really well You're drawing on your cultural heritage and some of these motifs and connections are really symbolic and spiritual and essential to how you identify yourself as a community. How do you translate that to fashion and sell it? And what's that balance like? Yeah, it's a cha- it is a challenging balance because when you emerge and, you know, you go into the fashion world, there is an expectation to mass produce and to scale up. Um, so I was always very mindful to try to remain authentic to my original vision that my work is storytelling always. Um, and so every piece has a story. The process of making is as important as the end product. And because the island that I come from, Rotuma, um, is is quite a small island and remote. We're often very invisible in the world. And through colonization, you know, we became quite invisible in the big commonwealth and then became even more in, invisible when we were em- emerged and became part of um, Fiji. And so often people say, oh, that's one of the islands of Fiji when we're actually a completely separate nation where we have our own language, we have our own culture. And we're uh, we're very strongly affiliated to a lot of the Maohi nation, which is Tahiti Nui and the Maoris in Aotearoa. And so we kind of have become quite invisible in that way. A lot of the world maps don't even show us on it. Wow. And so my work was always about trying to create that visibility around our people and our practice. For listeners who may be on the other side of the world, who are not familiar with Fiji geographically, there's around 300 islands, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And Fiji's, if you're living up in the Northern Hemisphere, we're Southern Hemisphere, where Rotuma is pretty much smack bang in the middle of the Oceania. So if you look at the big Oceania Pacific map, we're this dot right in the middle, kind of below Hawaii, above New Zealand. Could you take us there? Since we cannot see it, what does it look like? What does it smell like and feel like? Is it forest? Is it what? Tell us, take us home. You know, Rushuma is interesting because even though it is remote, it's sort of biodiversity is really vast. Like the mountains are extremely mountainous, you know, so very stark beauty. And so you can be in the ocean with these crazy blue, blue, blues, and then the white, white, white sands, and then directly step onto black lava rock, which then takes you immediately up into these really green, green mountains. 
we were talking before about sustainability as a topic that drives the global fashion conversation. But I tried to get people thinking here about how incredibly relevant and relatable it is if you just stop thinking about the papers from the United Nations and the statistics and the percentages and just think it's about seeing nature as something we're part of and also how immediate it is. How does that inspire your work? Yeah, I think, you know, the reason why our world is the way it is is because we've become so disconnected from land and disconnected from our ocean and sky. And so a lot of my practice and a lot of the young people that I work with is trying to find that reconnection. Because a lot of young people too, we, we live in urban spaces, right? So you're disconnected from that practice of planting your own food. Why do you work with young people? I think I have a mama nature within me. All of the young people I work with call me Mama Hanua, which is mother of the land. And so just always really particular about ensuring that transmission of knowledge because my parents and my grandparents' generation were from the generation that were part of that colonization uh, space. And so they, you know, a lot of their knowledge was banned. Their language was banned. Really? And really? so that disruption of practice happened at that generation. Actively suppressing culture and story. Yeah, absolutely. That's terrible. Yeah. And so there was a disruption of practice. And so my generation is a generation that has the the privilege of now having the power to bring that back, revitalize practice. Was that oral tradition storytelling as opposed to written down? Yeah, most of our history and our knowledge is orally transmitted. And with a lot of the text-based, I guess, education that's come into a lot of our systems, a lot of young people have forgotten that, that practice of getting knowledge from stories, from songs, from chants. I love this so much. Can you tell us more about how you do that with, for example, your print design and your motifs? Yeah, so we, in Rotuma, we used to have a very strong tatao or tattoo culture. We call it fa'i, which means to pair, to be together. And that practice was lost. Well, it has been lost for about, you know, 500 years. We don't have any physical evidence on people of it left. And so all of the symbology that I do on my fabrics are reimaginations of what that tatao practice could have been or that fa'i practice could have been. So by understanding our biodiversity on the island, understanding the prints that our birds make as they walk on the sand or understanding the prints, the patterns on our trees, it's reimagining what those symbologies on our bodies would have been. And so it's that revitalization of symbology on fabric because it then connects to people today. Fashion connects then to the young people because then they're like, okay, I, I'm going to go and get tattoo on my body. You know, that's like a big leap of faith. So if I do it first on fabric then maybe mm. in the future I want to revitalize that practice. If you were to simply translate those stories into visual designs but make the clothes offshore somewhere else without thinking about the fabrics, it would obviously not have the same resonance. You don't do that. Let's talk about the dyes. I thought this was so nice. That's how we started talking, right? Yeah, I mean, well, when I started, you know, we were obviously buying fabric that was already dyed, using paints for screen printing from shops. Uh, so when, when I began my practice, you know, still very ignorant of a lot of the toxicity in fashion. And so over the years, as I began to get a little bit more established, understanding what I was using, 
there was an immediate like, okay, this is completely separate from my vision of actually trying to sustain culture and practice. Because if you were saying, okay, I'm an indigenous artist and I want to sustain my culture, there's no point in doing that if it's not in your practice and you're polluting your own ocean. And and so then I was like, okay, what's the next step? So it's looking back at Dai. So mm. I, I then began having conversations with our weavers on the island. So I worked with a weaving group on the island and they and their memories. They were like, yeah, yeah, we remember we used to do natural dyes and my grandmother told me, we don't do it anymore, it's too hard to do and we get it from a shop now. So we began this process through COVID um, because everything shut down, right? So we were like, okay, what are we going to do during COVID? So it was like two years we could, you know, spend the time researching. So then just started looking at our old stories. So we found in a lot of our songs and chants, there was all this discussion about mena, um, which is a turmeric plant that's native to Rotuma that they used to use to stain the body for dancing. It's like yellow or red, Mm. depending on what you mix it with. And then they also used it to dye the the natural sort of fiber cloth that they made in the old days. And so it's like, okay, the practice existed, but it's gone. So let's revitalize the practice. Wow. But the plants are still here. The plants are all, we just all forgotten there. that we can just use them forgotten. in this way. Yeah. And some of the women were like, oh my goodness, yes, I've seen those plants. They grow wild everywhere. And I'm like, okay. They they were shipping in dyes all the way from Australia and New Zealand. It would take them maybe two, three weeks to get from Sydney to Nandi on a flight to Rotuma or the boat, it'd take maybe a month for them to get the dyes. Cost them about $50, $60. So it's much more expensive. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what I, we talked to the women about. was like, okay, rather than waiting for a month to get that yellow dye from Australia, which is going to cost you $60, harvest the turmeric, boil your stuff in turmeric, and then that's your story. And you remember, and someone in your community remembers or was told about it when it used to be common practice. Yeah, and then when, so when we had that conversation about the mena, it then triggered the other conversations about the different banana skins that created purples or reds. And then another person was like, oh, I remember we used to dye with red seaweed. We have red seaweed just down the road. I'm like, far out, okay, here we go, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So it just kept triggering other memories and... Yeah, so we started doing that last year. So my collection at Fiji Fashion Week last year was bringing back those natural dyes. Were people delighted? I'm delighted. Was the audience here really into it? Or, interesting, did they not notice but just still love the clothes? Yeah, loved the clothes but didn't get it. So then for me it was like, okay, I've done that bit. Now I have to find the really (laughs) cool young people who know how to talk about my practice and tell the story on their Twitter and Facebook and, you know, because I'm not from the generation that does that well. And so that's the next step is finding the storytellers to then talk about practice. All right. What about the fabrics? Because you told me that, for example, you are... Well, two different ways. One way is that you're definitely working with more sustainable materials that you're buying. You said you've got a supplier in Indonesia that you can get EcoVero from, which is sustainable viscose made by lensing. That's good. But what about some of the indigenous processes? Yeah, we. I, I know that with our women on the island, we used to make our own linen from a fiber called vesves and it's it's hibiscus mm, did you say yeah hibiscus. it's it's like a the hibiscus tree family um so in, in fiji the they call it vow and they use it for like the a lot of the skirts that they make for dance um, so and for ceremony when yesterday at the opening of fiji fashion week we were privileged to have this extraordinary welcome to country that's how we would say it in australia i'm not sure how you say it here I couldn't take my eyes off the cloth. Would that have been 
similar? Uh, probably their skirts, which are like the fiber skirts, would have been similar. So their cloth is made from um, mussy, which is the mulberry tree bark. But again, that's also a traditional cloth or a traditional fabric that was that is still extensively mm. utilized. Mm. And so the Fijians and Tongans have the practice of the, the tapa. With, oh, yeah. with Rotumans, we were more weavers. You said it was very fine. Yeah, extremely fine. So it's like a linen. It would look like a really dense linen piece, you know. Done um, by hand? All done by wow. hand. And uh, no one wants to do it now because it takes forever, right? Yeah, because it's like 32 fiber strings per inch. Um, that they weave and was it um, women or men traditionally? It was all women that wove, but the men would often do the harvesting and the cooking and the because the vespas when you harvest the trunk you then soak it in the the ocean for about two weeks to bleach it, so it's a uh, a natural bleach and then and then they bring it back up and they dye it in different ways. So you've got to be patient. Yeah, it's but the thing is, is once you create one piece of cloth, it lasts you you know, several years and it's something that you wear every day, you consume with it. But that practice again just died out once we started getting, you know, two dollar pieces of fabric in the shop down the road. You know, so it's about trying to look at ways of bringing those fibers back. It's interesting to me that you began with dance and that you can tell a story in so many different ways and you're now telling it through class, but you could each equally have told it and did do that through gesture and performance. Let's finish on what you think the opportunity is to bring together this really traditional, very sustainable, really beautiful community building process with fashion because they do seem so distant. And then you're saying the kids are like, what? <laughs> do you think that you in Fiji could create a fashion application for these sustainable indigenous processes? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a culture not just in Fiji, but worldwide of couture or those one-off dresses for that incredible event or that ceremony or that wedding or red carpet, you know. And so it's, you know, for me, it's definitely about creating pieces of work that are part of ceremony, you know, so that you, you know, when you adorn them, you become, you transform. And so, yeah, I'm definitely not going to be the designer that mass produces and is this the thing that you're going to wear five dollar off the rack it's definitely going to for me it's all about the storytelling piece that you're going to wear at that event and you're going to tell the story of my people and practice um and i and i think there's a place for that in the world um and it's going to be a piece that you hand down to your daughter and your granddaughter mm. um and i remember that from my grandparents Do i remember you? pieces handed down for generations because they were such high quality the mm. prints and the dyes were so beautiful that you looked after it. It's to me what the definition of luxury is. And when we talk about fashion as an industry and business, we often dwell on luxury as this big brand thing with a logo, which to me isn't right. Just because you put a logo, a fancy logo on something that is made of plastic, doesn't like a phone case, doesn't make it luxury. What you're talking about seems to me to be a real luxury. Yeah. And I think it's, it's about changing the world's perception of that luxury or changing our perception of what's beautiful um, and remembering that our fashion of old was exceptionally beautiful. Like the entire Pacific was built on a cultural industry and a creative industry that was 
all about adornment. Um, I know that Rutuma used to trade with the Tahitians for black pearls because the Tahitians wanted our fine mats. Um, we used to, our women used to make the mats for the royal families of Samoa and Tonga. Um, and in exchange, we'd get the high level tapa cloths. You know, so there, there was a high end luxury <laughs> industry in place. Wow. How inspiring. Can I come to Rutuma? <laughs> Absolutely. Can we go now? <laughs> it takes a while to get there, but it's worth it. <laughs> This has been the greatest podcast of all time. Thank you very much oh, for sharing you. your You're time welcome. with us. Now we're going to meet Nolene Billings and talk about learning from nature and reading its signals on Savu Savu. All right, we're ready. Nolene Billings, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for agreeing to do this impromptu, just last minute. Thanks, Claire. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, I was determined to ask if you'd be willing to share some of the insights that you brought up at this panel. We were talking about artisan skills in production here in Fiji. But first of all, you're working in and from the second largest island in Fiji. Can you tell us a bit about it? Sure. The second largest island uh, is in the north of Fiji. Uh, in particular, I work out of the headquarters uh, in uh, Sabsavu. Uh, it's just a little town and uh, also known as the hidden paradise of Fiji. That's nice. So, Why is it hidden? So, so, so we are hidden gems, uh, Claire. <laughs> Why is it hidden? Because it's not really touristy or because it's not promoted? What? Uh, it's sort of like a, a township that developed not too long ago around the, the gold uh, industry and... Uh, oh, mining. Yeah, mining. And we also had uh, fishing and the copper industry. Um, probably hidden in the sense of its location as well. We are in, in a bay. Uh, it's a whole uh, plane ride across or boat ride, you know, uh, to get to us. Um, but when you do get there, you'll find that you won't want to come back. How? So. <laughs> how? I'm going to come. Watch out. <laughs> Seriously. I want to ask you just about mining. The, the, it was, they were mining gold. Um, Is it finished? It's done, yeah. The place has closed um, just over a couple of years. Not too long. Um, yeah, and then the industry kind of just, just died away. And then we moved into other forms of uh, income. Yeah. Which is primarily what then? Primarily looking at um, farming industry, fishing industry, you know, a lot of agricultural uh, products. And uh, now we're sort of uh, branching into handcrafting and uh, a lot of things related to the land, land use. You're wearing very spectacular earrings. <laughs> what <you>. are they? <laughs> uh, these have been handwoven uh, by uh, ladies from Tuvalu, which is another part of the South Pacific. Uh, it has a uh, mother of pearl shell in the center. And because we, uh, there's also a part of us there in Savsavu that uh, farm um, black pearls, I would say, and uh, out of this same oyster that I'm wearing here. So uh, when I saw the Tuvalu women, how intricate their work is, and the mother of pearl shell, it reminded me of home. <laughs> So you I work, decided to get one. They're beautiful. <laughs> you work with women's groups in your area. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. I worked with, uh, we call it the Songo Songo Wakamarama, Itauke Dakondrove. Dakondrove uh, is the province that I come from on Vernoa Levu. Um, we look after 134 villages, Claire. It's a lot of villages to look after. It's one of the largest provinces in uh, Fiji. It covers uh, both uh, 
the the land and the sea. We have islands as well that we look after. And uh, it's all in the interest of women, uh, indigenous women. So basically what happens is you kind of born into this group. You become an automatic member, uh, but a financial member at the age of 16. That's how it's structured in your community. Yes, ah. and we have policies. Uh, we have uh, it's a whole setup. There's an executive committee, uh, and this executive committee is made up of uh, a member from each of the little um, communities within the province. Talk a bit about women's roles and women's power as leaders and community leaders, because I think this is something we find all around the world, that it can be with the women who hold families together, but also who hold culture. Yes. Within the indigenous Fijian culture, with us in the Kondrovi, uh, the men are the, um, what shall I say, the leaders of the household. So the women sort of take a second, uh, a second priority. Eh? But with the way we've been uh, empowering women, uh, the roles have kind of changed a little. Like the women have come out a lot more. They're starting to shine. Uh, we're increasing their knowledge. And so we're finding now that the men are sort of uh, using the women more in the villages. You were saying before about reconnecting with seasonality when it comes to flow. I love this so much, Nolan, yes, about yes. how nature has its way. Yes. And if you go with the flow of that, then you can have an easeful time collecting food, living yes. in harmony with what's around you. That makes a lot of sense if you put it that way. But we live increasingly against the flow of that, right? Mm. We want what we want whenever we want it, never mind seasonality. You told a lovely story about when the octopus were ready to be mm. easily got at. <laughs> how would you say it? Yes. Uh, but also how the men then came round and were like, what? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Tell us that story. Yes. Uh, with with this women's group, we're trying to revive this seasonal calendar. And it's a Fijian seasonal calendar where in Fiji, every month there's a different uh, food uh, in the ocean that is uh, ready for harvest. And the signs uh, we see on land, like say there's going to be a tree, a certain kind of tree, when it flowers during that month, we know, okay, the octopus are ready to be harvested this month, or maybe the crabs are ready. With the octopus, in the month of August, they're normally ready for harvest. So they come out of their their little burrows, their little holes in the reefs, and then they come and they sit on the reef, more or less. So during that season in August, that's the season to harvest the octopus. So then you leave everything else alone. You know, you you come out and you eat the octopus in that season. And then there's certain months where the crabs will be ready. And we also have seasonal fish that come out only in a certain month. And we have this, uh, this very rare sort of, uh, the, the, let me say that the, the, the scientists and marine biologists are still trying to decide whether it's a worm or whether it's a plant because it has worm-like features, but it also has green chlorophyll in it too. So it comes What's it out, called? we call it balolo, and it comes out usually in two seasons in a year, and uh, it's a delicacy. So that's the only time it's going to come out. It's not going to come out at any other time. So now we sort of, uh, to preserve it, some people are freezing it so that it can last long. But the funny thing about it is it'll only come out while it's still dark 
and then it floats up to the surface and you have to scoop it out with strainers. Anything that, you know, the water can run through and it, you strain it and then you put it into your little uh, buckets or basins or whatever. And if you, if the sun comes out and you're late to gather it, it's going to melt in the heat of the sun. You know, so those, that's one of the delicacies too that comes out in season. Around the world, we've become increasingly disconnected from the cycles of nature and seasonal eating. Listeners will recognize this if you're affluent and in a privileged position where you can shop in the supermarket for food that's been flown in from the other side of the world whenever you want it. You're just not connected with when it was meant to be ready. But you're just talking about common sense, talking about what just feels right. It's not actually that complicated but it's wisdom that we've lost. Yes, so what we've done is, uh, this is a, a culture and a practice that uh, our ancestors used to um, used to have, used to keep, uh, used to share with maybe two generations ago or so, and then it started to disappear. And uh, we've noticed now that it's the only thing that's going to be sustainable and it's going to bring back our ecosystems and our marine life and all that is if we were to follow this same seasonal calendar. Uh, when our education system changed, we questioned the, 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 um, the education level of our ancestors, saying, oh, they didn't go to university. You really? Know? You know? So really? why would we listen to them? You know? So now we are realizing, hey, our ancestors were real, the real scientists, actually. They're the real scientists, so we need to go back on this. They understood the strength in our timbers, even though they had never been tested. So they knew what timbers to use, uh, what was the sturdy timbers to use that would last through hurricanes, that would last through cyclones, you know. Uh, they knew about the food system, how it would work. They knew about the lunar system, how the moon worked, and how... It raised the water table and the water table would come up and the water table would drop when the moon is up and when the moon is down. It always makes me think of, a, of this word harmony. There yes. is a harmony. Balance is a good word, but there's a harmony in living with nature when you respect it and when you understand it or her, depending on how you want Yes, <laughs> and th that's why if you, if you strike up um, a song, a hymn or a chorus and you, amongst us Fijians, Everyone just knows without even practice which voice you're going to take, soprano, alto, bass, or you just fall in, you know. And which so is instinctive, right? It's instinctive, and the harmony just comes. Is it instinctive? Is it knowledge that you have to learn or is passed down? How do you access it? Yes, it is knowledge. Like, I remember um, my great-grandfather coming back from the farm. Well, first of all, he's goes to bed with the chickens and rises with the chickens. That's his alarm clock. <laughs> and then he'd come back from the, from the garden and he'd be bringing these branches and with him. And I'll ask him, hey, Pa, what's that? And he said, it's my herbal medicine. And he'll sit there and he's going to scrape it, you know. And he'll remove the outer bark first and then he'll use the inner bark. And he'll sit there and scrape it and then he's going to walk to the nearest coconut tree and remove the, we call it the strainer. But it's that uh, bit of fiber that hangs off the tree, and that's going to become the strainer. And you don't use any man-made strainer for that. And it makes sense to me now, because when you think of what the man-made strainers are made of... 
plastic. Yeah, and plastic and, you know, the metals and all that stuff. And uh, it makes sense to me now. I didn't realize then. I was thinking, hey, but we got that from the shop. Why don't you use that? And he says, no, because it's going to, you know, give off some sort of um, toxic substance. You talked about seasonality and there's a season for everything. Other examples from fashion and craft and textiles? Yes, because at a certain season of the year, you have, uh, say, certain trees that's going to flower at a certain time and uh, they'll come out with the seed pods or their, their seeds or their fruits. Or whatever. That's the time you can use that in fashion. For dyes? Or? For dyes and also for necklaces, for jewelry, because you use the seeds that are within those pods. Uh, for dyes too and for like say for example with us um, culturally with our coconut oils the fragrance of those oils comes out of those flowers so at a certain time only when they flower you know at a certain season that's when you collect all those flowers and then you use it to create the fragrance that goes into the coconut oil what about the pandanus and the weaving yes for that one um, I was saying this morning, uh, some people used to wonder why their mats rot quickly and why do, does the, the bamboo walls, why does it rot quickly? And then, you know, we realized after studying the seasonal calendar that our ancestors would only harvest that pandanus and the bamboo on dark nights when there was no moon. Really? It sounds crazy, but when you look at the science behind it, you know, the plant is not photosynthesizing, but when, when there's a, a moon up, that's still the presence of light, so it's still photosynthesizing, you know? And I love this because here's another example of how it's easy to say science tells us this, but often you're just explaining something that was known by people generations we previously. We knew it through habits and through observation. Uh, with a, even right up to the birds and the bees. When the hornets, say for example with the hornets, when they make their, build their nests on the ground or close to the ground, we know that that year is a year we're going to have a hurricane. It Ooh. never goes wrong. There's always a hurricane. It's reading nature's signals, it's, isn't it? Yes, it's reading all the signals without having been a biologist or, you know, having haven't been to university, but all the years of observation and passing the knowledge down from generation to generation. Nolene, you were speaking before we were recording about how Fijians have this particular connection to totems and country and animals that defines their identity in their community. Fijians, like we are the, the only people in the world that have this identity and it actually is recorded in a special book in Fiji uh, if you're, you have indigenous uh, roots. Eh? So we, we sort of uh, divide ourselves into, um, into geographical areas. And within those geographical areas, you have different clans living in those areas. And so it's broken down further and further until you get to the family, the family unit. So once you get to the family unit on all these different divisions, then we have the totems, which connect us as a people directly to our environment. So you have an identity of uh, a tree, identity of a fish, and the identity of a bird. Could you tell us yours? Yes, so from my, because I have a maternal links, my, from my grandmother's side, my three totems are my tree is the Vesi tree, which is a very hard, sturdy wood. My uh, bird, we call it the Lawetenge, 
It's a very cheeky bird. It's a very frisky bird. <laughs> it sits on the on a tree branch and you, it it can't keep still. And when I think of it, that's exactly my personality. <laughs> my tail's always wagging, and when I can't wait to fly off somewhere, eh? and then my fish happens to be the shark. Oh, so yeah. So I think it really does depict my character as well. <laughs> This is so beautiful because when you're so connected with your identity deep into nature and the environment and your surroundings, it's impossible really to willfully trash it. You can't do that. It just isn't part of your worldview. You can't, it, you wouldn't. Yes. Talk about I, how, what I, we can all learn from this. I was saying, when I, when I look at this, that any indigenous Fijian, if he knows his or her roots and he knows, or he or she knows the meaning of it, every Fijian should be directly connected to the environment. They should not be polluting the environment. And even when it goes into fashion, we should be using materials that we know are recyclable, you know, are sustainable, because that's what our Fijian forefathers used to do. They they work with barks of, you know, tree barks for their fabrics and natural dyes that they'd get. And nothing, nothing was synthetic, nothing was toxic. Everything went back into the ground and was recycled in nature. You know, so there was nothing at all that was damaging to the environment. And I mean nothing. And even when they ate, when they ate, when they prepared their food, there was nothing that was processed. Is that connection being lost Yeah, that's the thing. Um, I definitely feel that it's being lost. It, it is lost. And that's where, why we are trying to, to bring it back. Eh? So like when we went into the villages and took, say, for example, this uh, these workshops to revive this seasonal calendar, I was mentioning today that most of our our listeners were men. And then these men were getting excited about something that they knew, you know, it, it was there, but just... They just hadn't bothered to really look at it in depth. So when we explained everything about the seasonal calendar and how it worked, it sort of reignited this uh, excitement. Eh? Um, but I think it's it is going to be challenged to sort of bring it back and practice it again because now we are being spoiled. You know, we've we've got a lot of machinery now. We've got uh, other convenience because in order for that to happen, you'll have to. Uh, You'll have to sacrifice the convenience. So you'll have to wait for when the octopus are ready, you know. Uh, and then economically, a lot of them do it because they want they have to sell it to feed the family. So we are trying to find a way. How can we turn it into a cycle so that it still becomes economical and they can still afford to look after their families and provide, but using, you know, following that cycle. Mm. Just Do, following the cycle. What makes you hopeful? Let's finish on that. I think for me, the way I view it is that we don't really don't have a choice because if not, we we'll, we'll lose it. There's already some places where seasonal fish normally appear that are not appearing anymore. It's gone. So if we if we don't do something about it now, we'll be losing all those seasonal fish. It's not going to come back. We'll destroy the whole thing. The whole system. So there is an urgency that we all know if we care to look with climate, with plastic, all the rest of it. We know it's there. I mean, that's why I just loved listening to you speak about these cultural answers. If we could reconnect in whatever way, and I guess what I'm grappling at here is, would you want to, in closing, 
What sort of message would you give us if we're not Indigenous and we don't have this clear line to try to reconnect with something that is so deep within us? What can we do if you're listening? Because I think there is still something we can do. I think we we were talking about this before. We've all got this innate place in nature. Yes. Is that the right phrase? I don't know. Yes. We are all connected to nature. You know, it's just the concrete jungles that have sort of separated us. eh? I mean, you as a human being yourself, you're, you're, you're natural. You know, you're natural. So you will immediately have these instincts as well, even though you might be living in the middle of a city where in the morning you look forward to the sun rising and in the evenings you kind of look for the moon, even though you almost can't see it. But like, you know, you, you, you even try to teach your kids about the moon and maybe in, in during the weekends you will drive out somewhere to a beach or to something. Whatever it is that you're going to look for, going to see, that is your inner being calling out to nature. You know, it's you trying to connect without even realizing that that's really what it is. So that's the reason why I felt this morning it was important for me to raise that with you because, okay, you're here coming to talk to us about fashion. And, you you know, I thought it would be interesting for you to know how we connected to fashion which which was kind of a bit like mind-blowing because, you know, that's the only way when you understand us and the indigenous and how we function. Mm. And then you can connect that to your knowledge and somehow we can form that, that cycle. I've got to say, because you work. can't see me, you just made me cry <laughs> because I feel when you said that. Yes, I'm speaking from the heart. Yeah, and, and I'm sure you can feel it listening you're sharing something we've all got a deep knowing of, but we're all forgetting. Yes, and for us, we take it a step further, always in the Pacific, I would say for all all of us in the Pacific. Uh, we, we don't do it for us, but we do it for our future generations. Because we always ask ourselves, you know, is my son or my daughter going to be able to eat the same kind of healthy food that we have now? Uh, just the thought of them... Uh, struggling to find healthy food, suffocating on air that's not clean to breathe, you know. The thought of them now, the going through that, it's it, it pains us, you know. Mm. So we try to do our best to try and keep up um, with what's happening. But then we also ask ourselves the question, you know, with the superpowers in this world trying to, you know, come up, make the big decisions, we hope that they will think of uh, future generations. And uh, I've often said to people who've asked me, you know, Nolene, you should be up there somewhere, very successful doing something. And I say, and my happiness, you know, and what of, I said, life is more than about just money. It's so much more. You know, just like the word love, it means so much more. And so that's why I keep telling them, if you can understand that, then... You can appreciate the the cycle of life. Thank you. This has been absolutely lovely. I appreciate it. Thank you, Claire. It's such a pleasure to be able to share this with others too. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. 
tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you Because I love you